Hello, it's Sunday, March 12th, 2023. I'm Chip Stewart. This is the Worthy You See podcast. Uh, this podcast is only in an audio format, and uh, it's currently available on Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon Music, and several other platforms. And uh, if you are edified by, by what I'm sharing in these, uh, in these episodes, please... Um, Please feel free to share this with uh, with other folks so they too can um, can benefit um, the the teachings that um, that I have here. So today, this episode is about the high priestly prayer that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ prays in John chapter seventeen, and the content of this episode is second in a series of teachings I did at Dunwoody Community Church in Atlanta, Georgia. And um, this one follows behind the world system, which you'll find back in episode six, um, which I recorded earlier this year. And um, this, this episode here on the High Priestly Prayer will precede um, a teaching that I did on eternal security based on 1 John, which I will record at a, a future date. And if you'd like a complete listing of, of this series of teachings that I did, you can find it in the in the show notes. And right now, this is the second one that I'm I'm recording um, after the fact. And um, there is one that that I recorded live um, as I was um, conducting conducting the teaching itself. So you can find um, find that one as well. But the full list um, is in the show notes. So why is this prayer by our Lord important for us? I think it's essential that we understand that before we go into actually reading John chapter 17 and then going through verse by verse and looking at what he has to say. And, and by no means is this an exhaustive study of, of this prayer. But it's important because this prayer gives us a glimpse into the relationship between our Father in heaven and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, his Son. It's a, um, it records how Jesus prayed for his disciples and not only his disciples who were with him while he walked on the earth, but also for us, his disciples now, the future believers. It's essential for us to understand this and see what he prays about us because it affects the way that we live. And, um, and so what I'm going to do is... To read this, I'm going to actually start in chapter 16, verse 33, and then I will proceed into chapter 17. So from the Legacy Standard Bible, um, starting in, in chapter 16, verse 33, it says, These things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him he may give eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having finished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which 
I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them. And they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they, and they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine. And I have been glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves." I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also sent them into the world. For their sake I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may, may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you. And these have known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them, and will make it known, so that the love with which you love me may be in them, and I in them. So as we go back through this chapter, I've broken it into five sections. And uh, before we get into the first section, let's go back to chapter 16, verse 33. And in this one, Jesus declares that he wants his disciples to have peace. He wants us to have peace, even though we will experience trouble in this world. And he also wants us to know that he has overcome the world system in which we currently live. And by knowing that, we can be at peace. So now let's take a look at, uh, at chapter 17, where I believe that in his prayer, he also demonstrates some of these desires for us to have peace based on what, what he reveals to us um, through this prayer. So in section one, I've broken that into um, verses one through five. There's a couple main themes here. Um, the first about eternal life and the second about glory. 
So in regards to, uh, to eternal life, the question is, you know, who receives eternal life? And, and, but, you know, even before that, who grants eternal life to them? So in this chapter, in verse 2, it says that those who the Father have given to the Son receive eternal life. And some other scriptures that help describe this, if you go to John chapter 6, verse 37, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. And then in verse 39, he says, This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. So these should be very comforting words to us, saying that the Father gives us to the Son. The Son is not going to cast us out, and he is not going to lose a single one of us. And then in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 5, it says, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. So that's who receives eternal life, those the Father gives to the Son. And then the Son, in verse 2, grants eternal life. So here the Father has given him authority over all flesh. And then in John chapter 3, verse 16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And then in chapter 10, verses 27 through 29, he talks about being the good shepherd. And he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. So here's a beautiful picture of us being held in the hands of both the Father and the Son. And then when you add in receiving the Holy Spirit as a seal upon us, we are secured by the Trinity in our salvation. That should be very comforting for us and and help us to not fear and to follow Him wherever He leads. So here with eternal life, those a father have given the son receive it, and the son grants eternal life. So, how does how does Jesus describe eternal life? Well, it, it's very interesting in, in this passage because you would expect him to describe it in in the sense of time, eternity, eternal, how long, right? But instead, he describes it differently. And that's knowing the Father and the Son. Eternal life is, it is that they may know the Father and the Son, and the Son whom the Father has sent. So it's about, eternal life is about knowing. That deep, intimate love relationship is what the Greek here means in regards to know. So that's the way we need to think of eternal life, not in in the terms of time, but in our relationship, that is the eternal life, is the relationship we have with the Father and the Son.
So, you know, what is the opposite of this eternal life? You know, what, what's, if you don't have eternal life, well, what do you have? Well, you know, the Bible teaches that you have eternal damnation. You have the eternal fire, punishment, judgment. It's to perish. And that's why we take the gospel to the people of this world who don't believe so that they have an opportunity to hear the gospel message, repent, and accept the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior so that they do not have this uh, eternal punishment um, any longer. So also in regards to, uh, it, to eternal life, um, our relationship with the world also can play into eternal life in this way. So this, this, is, this is what I'm talking about in John chapter 12, verse 25, where it says, He who loves his life will lose it, and he, he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So it's that relationship that we have with the world that can be very telling of whether we have eternal life or not based on whether we love the Lord Jesus Christ and has accepted him, accepted him as, our, as our Savior. And um, eternal life is also a gift. Um, in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, it says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And the distinction here is people, people think that you have to work, you have to earn your salvation. But, but the Holy Spirit here is saying, no, it's a gift of God. You just have to accept it. You have to accept the sacrifice that the Lord has made on the cross for you. That's all you have to do is accept it. Repent and accept. That's it. You don't have to work for your salvation. All the other religions in the world, you have to work for your salvation. But here it's a gift. And I think this is a very important distinction to make. Now, continuing on to the, the second main theme here in the first five verses, um, and that's about glory. Uh, if you look at verses 1 and then 4 through 5, um, it, it speaks of, of glory here. This is what, this is what our Lord is, is discussing and, and praying to the Father about. And I, I think it's best to lead off with, well, what, is, you know, what do uh, glorify and glory mean? Um, glorify um, can mean to praise, to magnify and honor in worship to ascribe honor to, to extol. So glorifying our Father in heaven. Glory can mean splendor, magnificence, honor, and praise ascribed in adoration. So here in, in this part of, um, of the prayer, what, what does Jesus say about glory in relation to himself and the Father? Well, it, it's very interesting because... The only petition he makes for himself in this prayer is that the Father glorify his Son. That's it. The other petitions he's making are for us. So, why does he even talk? Why, why does Jesus talk about glory here at all? Well, I think it's because he has now come to the time when he's successfully completed his work here on earth. And this is the work that the Father has given him to do to glorify his name. 
you know, in in, uh, in John chapter twelve, verses twenty seven through twenty eight, when when our Lord is praying, he he says, "Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name." So it speaks directly to the purpose given him by the Father, and he's to do all of this. His his sinless life on this planet, being being taken to the cross, it's all for the glory of the Father. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, it underscores this for us, for us. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So continuing to the second section, verses 6 through 10, Jesus begins to intercede for his disciples. Here in verse 6, um, it says, I have manifested your name. Interesting. It, what, what does he mean here? What does it reveal about, about our Lord? Well, manifested means to reveal, to make known. So I have revealed your name. I have made known your name. And so in in his conduct, in his behavior, in his walk, he has revealed the name of God. So then we have to ask, well, what does name mean? Uh, I mean, is it just Yahweh or, or, or Elohim? What, 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 what are we talking about here? Is it just a word? And, and it's a lot more than that. You know, you think of someone's name and it's their reputation. It's their character, their renown. Their honor, praise, distinction, authority, their attributes, their will, their purpose, their wisdom, their power, God's goodness, his honor, his glory. It's all of these things. It's his name. It's who he is. And in, in Psalm chapter, I'm sorry, in, in, uh, in Psalm chapter 9, verse 10, it says, And those who know your name will put their trust in you, for you, Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. And in Psalm 20, verse 7, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God, the name, who he is, all those things I mentioned, his reputation, character, his power, his goodness, his honor, his glory, all of these things. So Jesus has revealed who God is during his work on earth. And so he mentions the men in verse 6. And this would be the 11 disciples. And 11 because Judas is not being counted here, and he explains that within the prayer itself um, as the son of perdition, um, that, that he is not saved so that the scripture may be fulfilled. But these men were given to Christ by the Father out of the world. So they've been for the Father has taken them out of the world system and given them to Christ. And there are several scriptures that, that help to reinforce this idea. John chapter 6, verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out, which we covered before. Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verses 4 and 5. Um, Just as he chose us in him before the foundational world having predestined us to adoption as sons, 
Roman chapter 8, verse 29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. 2 Timothy 1, 9. Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began? 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. Because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, to which he called you by our gospel for the attaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then finally in Romans chapter 9, verses um, 16 and 18, So then it is not of him who wills, not of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. Talking about who provides that salvation. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, he hardens. So the prayer continues where it talks about the disciples receiving the word from the Father given to them through Christ, and that they have kept the Father's word. So that was verse 8, and then this is verse 6, talking about them having kept the Father's word. And that they truly understand that Christ came forth from the Father and was sent by the Father. And to know that, to know who Christ is, you know, and to truly understand him, they know that he's the Son of God. He's equal in essence, eternally coexistent with the Father, creator of all things, and the source of eternal life and and spiritual light. And this is from the John chapter 1, the first chapter of, of John, verses 1 through 4. So a description of, of who Christ is. And so that's a description of the men whom he's praying for. And then he begins to intercede for them. So what's, what's crucial for us is Christ as intercessor. He intercedes on their behalf before he goes to the cross. And now he intercedes even for us. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse, verses 24 through 27, But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to him, to come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. And then in Romans chapter 8, verse 34, it is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. This is a very important point as a Christian Christ interceded for you before he went to the cross, and he intercedes for you with the Father now, that he sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven. This should be very comforting for you, and that you have access to the Father through the Son, and that he's interceding for you because he loves you. He went to the cross for you. He loved you so much he went to the cross for you. Also, a distinction being made here is that Christ says he is not praying on behalf of the world, the, the satanic world system. It is not his. 
And the believers, the people who the Father has given him, are not a part, are no longer a part of the world system. And I'll get to the reason why he is leaving us. He talks about not taking us out of the world here in a minute. Um, and there's a reason behind that. So here's some, here's some scriptures that describes us being taken out of the world system. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Meaning that the world system has no more love for him and it has no more pull on him. It should have no more authority over him. The world's been crucified to him and then he has been crucified to the world, been taken out. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You know, we're not to be conformed to this world system that we've been taken out of. And in 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 through 5, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. Remember that Christ says he has overcome the world. So for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So that is our faith, that Jesus is the Son of God. And then finally, in this, in this section, continuing on, he mentions that everything is the Father's and Christ's. So they, 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 they have it all together. And then Christ has been glorified in those men that the Father has given him. Now let's move on to verses 11 through 19, or section 3 uh, in this teaching. And in this portion, Jesus is still praying for his 11 disciples. And, and he uses the name of God here. And keep them in your name, or protect them by the power of your name. And this is in, in verse 11. And this is the name which was given to Christ. And and Christ has been keeping them in the name that the Father has given him now that Christ is, is departing. And what it says here is that they may be as one, which I'm going to talk about here in a minute. But it goes back to um, keep them in your name. It's his reputation. So God, no, no purpose of God is thwarted. So if he's keeping something in his name, it's going to be kept it's going to be done. It's a very secure position to be in. So he, he talks about um, the son of perdition. He, he keeps the 11 disciples except for this one he calls the son of perdition, who is Judas. And, you know, the question then becomes, well, what, what scripture is being fulfilled? Well, if you turn um, to the book of Psalms in chapter 41, verse 9, even my own friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. So that's what he's talking about. Because throughout Christ's life here on earth, he was fulfilling prophecy after prophecy after prophecy that spoke of him. 
Moses and the prophets spoke of him. And so this is one of those that one of his disciples would betray him. And that was, that was Judas. And in verse 13, the question is, why, why does Christ speak these things while, while in the world? And, and what things? Well, it's, it's Christ's intercession with the Father for his disciples. And, and the purpose is so that his disciples may have Christ's joy made full in themselves. And so the word joy, I think, is worth defining at this point. And I like to, to use Noah Webster's 1828 dictionary whenever I define a, a, a biblical word. Um, I've, I've observed within these past several years that definitions seem to change on a whim. And I'd prefer to go back to something maybe that's a little bit more solid of a foundation for the meaning of words in our language. So normally I'll go back to Noah Webster's 18, 1828. And I encourage um, everyone to take a look at it. It's available online. Um, you can do word searches. I've got a, I've got a hardbound copy of it. It's pretty big. <laughs> but uh, so let's, let's look at Noah Webster's um, dictionary. Uh, sorry, excuse me, definition of joy. And he, he describes it as a glorious and triumphant state, the passion or emotion excited by the acquisition or expectation of good. That excitement of pleasurable feelings which is caused by success, good fortune, the gratification of desire, or some good possessed, or by a rational prospect of possessing what we love or desire. The joy of, of possessing Christ. He who we love, he whom we love and, and desire to know more. Um, also, he defines as gladness, exultation, and the exhilaration of spirits. And there's several scriptures I'd like to share with you that talk about joy, just to kind of stay on, on this theme of joy um, so that we kind of get an idea of, of what joy that, um, that we're talking about here, Christ's joy. Nehemiah, in Nehemiah uh, chapter 8, verse 10, it says, Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. It says the joy of the Lord is strength. That's pretty amazing. Uh, Psalm chapter 5, verse 11, But let all those who rejoice who put their trust in you, let them ever shout for joy because you defend them. Let those also who love your name be joyful in you. Hebrews chapter 12, verses one through two. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The joy that was set before him. He went to the cross because of that. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 3. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Matthew chapter 25, verse 21, the parable of the talents. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You are faithful, faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of of your Lord. And there's two scriptures here which um, ha have influenced me to begin this podcast and why, why I do them is it's for, for your joy um, and to, to enter into the joy of your master, to run the race that, that has been set before us. Um, and, and then finally, you know, when we have, have done our work well, 
for the Lord here on earth, we can enter into the joy of our master and, and say, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what I hope for all of you. And I think through the study of his word, we'll become more effective servants of Christ. We'll be purified more wholly um, in, in his service. So in this part of the passage, in this section, what, what, is, what does Jesus say about the relationship of those the Father gave him to the world? So what's the relationship between us and the world? Well, in, in verse 14, it says, the world hates the disciples, the world hates us because they are not of the world, we're not of the world, just as Christ is not of the world. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 says, for our citizenship is in heaven. Let's be very clear here. For our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for, our, for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Based on this fact, he's, he's received them out of the world from the Father. How does he then pray for his followers in these circumstances? You would expect, well, you know, hey, we've got them out of the world. Let's, let's take them to heaven. Let's, you know, let's protect them, you know, for sure. Let's get them out of this, this ugly, satanic world system. But that's not what he prays for here. He says he does not pray for them to be taken out of the world. He does not pray for us to be taken out of the world. Well, why is that? Why is that? It's because we have a purpose. We have a mission. And it's called usually called the Great Commission. But for people to come to Christ and to know Him, to repent of their sins and accept Him as their Lord and Savior, they have to hear the gospel. So that means somebody who's a follower of Christ needs to proclaim the gospel. That's why we are still here. So Paul describes this in Romans chapter 10, verses 12 through 15, like this. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then he describes how this works. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? So he's saying, how can somebody who's not believed before call on a name if they don't know who he is? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? Just as is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who proclaim good news of good things. So here is the need for the preacher to proclaim the gospel. So continuing on in this prayer, Jesus asks that we are sanctified in the truth. Meaning, he wants us to be more and more conformed to the likeness of himself and, to, and for us to be set apart for useful service. You know, we looked at the word sanctifies, it's to cleanse, to purify, to make holy. And then Jesus is going to send us out into the world. And back into the previous, um, the previous verse, we talk. He says, he prays that we are kept from the evil one. So instead of taking us completely out of the world, what he is praying to the Father for is our protection from the evil one. And I would suggest that is something that we pray 
on a regular basis. We pray in line with the way our Lord prayed for us while here on earth, that the, that the Father protect us from the evil one while we are living in this life and we are executing his will. We're being obedient to him. Just ask for that. Ask for that protection. So Christ is sending us out in the world instead of taking us out. This is verse 18. So let's turn to Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 through 20 in the Great Commission. So this is what I was talking about before. This is why we're here. We're being, we're being given a purpose. Christ is commanding us to do something. And it's as follows. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. So he's telling us to make disciples of all the nations. So this is the impetus. This is the motivation for the missionary trips to other nations, the, the, the translation of the Bible, the Word of God, into other languages. It's this right here. Make disciples of all the nations. This is what our Lord is telling us to do. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So here's the second part, to baptize them, that public declaration of faith that they make. And you baptize them in the name of the Trinity. Here is a, is a clear example of the Trinity. Teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And here's a third commandment, teach them. And we're teaching other disciples to observe all the things that Christ has commanded us. So that takes knowing the word, what those are. And people, we have to learn the word so that we can be obedient to our master. We show our love for Christ through our obedience. And we know how to be obedient when we study his word. We study him and what he has told us to do. And then right here at the end, Christ is comforting us and saying, And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He is with us. He is with us. We are secure in him. He loves us, and he gives us those things that we need to do to accomplish his will. But he's there. And, and back in this prayer, he has prayed that we are protected from the evil one while we are still here in, in his world system. So moving down to verses 20 through 23 in, in what I have here, section 4, Jesus now prays for others. He, he changes the focus of his prayer. And, and now he's praying for the future followers of Christ, those who believe through their message. So if you go back to uh, Matthew chapter 20, verses 19 through 20, these, the, he's praying for the people who are the result of the disciples going out and making more disciples. And he prays for them that they may be as one, this is in verse 21, just as we are one, talking about the Trinity, talking about the Father and the Son. And it's amazing to think that the model for our unity within the body of Christ is based on the relationship within the Trinity and that, that love relationship that they have. It, it's... I think it would take a study in and of itself to really uh, deal with that uh, adequately. But why, why does Christ want us to be as one? 
and this is important, this is a purpose, that the world may believe that you sent me. So here we are, witnesses for Christ. We, we are what the world sees of Christ so that the world knows that the Father sent him. And also that they, the world knows that the Father has loved them, the disciples, as the Father loved Christ. And he's, the Father has also given us his glory. Christ is praying that the Father give us his glory so that we may be as one. So what does as one mean? Because this is very important. I mean, this, this reflects God, this, his desire for us to be as one, as the body of Christ, as believers. It's a reflection of God. So it's the message that, that we're sending to the world. If we're not acting as one, well, what, what message does that, that send to the world? So what, what does as one mean? So if you turn to Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, it may give us an idea of what as one means. Um, it says here, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit... If any affection and mercy fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus." So reading through this passage, it really does remind me of what Christ is praying for here in uh, in his high priestly prayer in chapter um, 17 of uh, of John. So being being like-minded, that that could be um, deep knowledge of the Word of God, you know, having a like mind, thinking things the same way. You know, for, for I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state, for all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. This is Paul talking in Philippians um, chapter 2, verses 20 through 21. This is to help us seek the things that are of Christ, to know the Word of God. What makes us not like-minded? Well, here it talks about it. It's seeking our own interests and not those of Jesus. And then again, how do we know the things of Christ Jesus? To know his word. He gives us his word so that we may know him better. And when we're like-minded, we need to be like-minded in this truth. We need to be as one in this truth of the Bible and not at the expense of the truth. You don't sacrifice the truth for unity. You need to be unified in the truth that God has provided to us. Looking at um, what he describes as having the same love, the same love for one another. Um, John chapter 13, verses 34 through 35 says, um, here Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And I think this is also that reflection of the, the love within in the Trinity, you know, to be reflective of their relationship in heaven. 
And by this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This directly reflects what he is describing in, uh, in praying for uh, in this prayer. And then of one accord, of one mind. You know, here we have of one purpose, one intent. And that would be to advance the kingdom, to glorify God. How should we then walk based on this? Um, Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verses 1 through, 1 through 6 says, um, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. So I think here Paul is really wrapping it up as far as this unity and the oneness that is being described here. And because of this, you know, we have to ask yourself, do you, do you, do you think being one, based on the scriptures that we've read here and the way Jesus was praying for us, do you, do you think that this is important? It is. And again, I can't emphasize that, that we need to be um, one in the truth and not sacrifice the truth to achieve that unity. But we have to do this, and it's mentioned a couple times here, and it talks about humility, not being prideful about it, but being humble, you know, doing so with all lowliness and gentleness, long-suffering, bearing, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And that can, that can harken back to peacemakers, you know, blessed are the peacemakers um, that Jesus talks about in his Sermon on the Mount. And then um, in verse 23, finally, it says here, the Father loves us as he loves his Son. That's pretty amazing. He loves us that much. He loves us as he loves his Son. Hallelujah. Continuing on to section 5, the last verses here, 24 through 26. Christ prays that we be with him where he is. And, and I think this could potentially be seen in two ways. Um, in, in heaven and on earth. Um, if you look at John chapter 14, verse 3. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may also be. So Christ is preparing a place for us in heaven, and, I, and we'll be with him in heaven one day. Um, but also, if you look in John chapter 12, um, verse 36, it says, If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. And, it, and this sounds like where he is working here on earth and accomplishing his purposes, there his servants will be as well. Because he, he, he chooses to work through us. Does he not? He chooses to work through us to spread the gospel to glorify his name on this, on this earth. So he prays for us to be with him. And it's interesting how he says that the Father loved him before the foundation of the world, which is very significant. And before, before all of this was created, all, all of creation, he and the Father enjoyed perfect fellowship, love, and glory. And I'm sure there could be another another study done on this but it also reflects the fact that they were coexistent eternally the father and the son 
in this last, last section, it, it describes how the world does not know the Father, and that has become pretty evident. Um, you know, the, when we talked about the world system and, and earlier on this prayer. And then Christ makes a final decor, declaration here. And uh, in verse 26, it says, you know, Christ has made the Father known and will continue to make him known so that the love of the Father will be in us and Christ will be in us. So it goes back to the Trinity where we've been sealed with the Holy Spirit and we received the Holy Spirit. And Christ is praying that the love of the Father will be in us and He will be in us. That should be very freeing for us. Open up possibilities for us, comfort us. It's an assurance that when you lose sight of, you can become anxious. And I, and I think when you realize how much they love you and that they're in you, you can be at peace and be at peace to follow the Good Shepherd wherever he may go and do his will. So to summarize this prayer, some of the things I'd like you to take away, and I'm just gonna kind of bulletize it here for you. Um, but Christ prayed on, on our behalf to the Father and he continues to intercede for us. He continues to do this, praise God. Christ wants us in the world to spread the gospel, to make disciples. He, he tells us that we will be hated by the world. Okay, so there's many other scriptures that talk about us facing persecution. However, you know, we'll be hated by the world, but then he prayed for us to be protected from the evil one while in the world. We have God's protection. The Father will sanctify us with his truth. He will purify us with his truth. He will make us more like Christ with his truth, which also means that we need to study his truth. We need to know it. Christ, our Lord, prayed for us, the body of Christ, to be as one, just as he and the Father are one. The Father loves us as he loves the Son. We will be where Christ is. The love of the Father is in us and Christ is in us. And all of this, when you go back to the very beginning, is for the glory of God. I hope you have found this um, review of Christ's high priestly prayer in uh, John chapter 17 to be edifying and um, inspiring. I, I, as I said at the beginning, this is not an exhaustive study by any means. Um, I encourage you to, to go back, read it, um, meditate upon it. Um, pray about it, but we have an amazing Savior who prayed for us before he went to the cross for the joy set before him, and we're part of that joy. Don't forget that. He has given us a mission, he's equipped us for that mission, and he loves us. I pray that God bless you in the hearing of this, and um, I hope that you can join me for the uh, for the next episode. But um, to all glory, all glory be unto God. In the name of Jesus Christ, Amen.